and welcome to Faith in Politics. Hello. We're your new hosts for the series. I'm Rodney. And I'm Meg, and we are so excited to be with you guys for the year. Today we have an amazing interview with Shane Claiborne, the co-founder of The Simple Way, where we talk about the US election. And he shares an amazing prayer, so be excited and ready to listen to it. Yeah, and after that, Rodney and I are going to explore a little bit about what it means to be non-partisan as Christians in the political sphere. But before we jump into that, we can do a quick little intro into ourselves, since, you know, we're the new hosts, we're the new face the podcast so Rodney tell us where are you from and what have you been doing before you ended up working for JPIT? Yeah so I'm 24 I live in Welling Bexley which is like out of London um I just recently finished my master's at Burbet studying LNM in constitutional politics law and theory and I was looking at what I would do after that and this internship came about and it was really interesting for me and something I thought I would go for because I desire to be in politics and faith is a big part of my makeup and I was like how do I bring those two together and this is like the perfect environment to learn how to do that and explore that so I'm going to throw the question back thanks Rodney Tell us about um, yourself, mate. yes I'm Meg I'm 21 I just graduated from LSE where I studied technically I studied a degree in government but it was politics they just called it something weird in Seattle, in London for the last three years. I live in King's Cross in central London. But before that, I am from Gloucestershire, specifically from the wonderful town of Tewkesbury. So yeah, we're so excited to be with you guys this year. And we're really, really excited for you to hear everything Shane had to say. So let's just jump straight into the interview with him. so much for being with us Shane we're so excited uh, to have you with us for those of you guys that don't know Shane is an activist and author he lives in Philadelphia as part of the simple way which he co-founded and has written a bunch of different books some of you guys might have read read letter Christians Jesus president and we're really excited to talk to him especially ahead of the American presidential election as of today it is 28 days away it will be a bit closer when this goes out but yeah we're really excited to hear his thoughts on it so yeah, just to start, Shane, how would you describe Red Letter Christians, what a Red Letter Christian is? Yeah, well, first of all, it's great to be a conversation partner. Great to be your guest. Thanks for having me. Uh, the Red Letter Christians, that's the work that I've been putting a lot of energy into these days. And we get our name, as you all might know, but maybe not everybody listening knows that there's a lot of Bibles that have the words of Jesus kind of highlighted in red to set them apart. And, uh, and there was a bunch of years ago, a friend of mine was being interviewed by a, a radio show host. And he said, you know, I've read a lot of the Bible and there's parts I like, there's parts that I find really confusing, but I've always liked the stuff in red. And he said, you guys seem to like the stuff in red. You should call yourselves red letter Christians. So that name, <laughs> that's where it came from. And it kind of stuck a lot of us, I mean, we, we, we believe in the whole Bible. We love the whole Bible, but we are very concerned that many Christians look very unlike our Christ. <laughs> you know, and it was, it was Gandhi, Gandhi who was asked about Christianity, and he said, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like him. And that's, that's kind of what we're after, you know. And, and so you can certainly see that, I think, uh, um, manifest itself in a particular way around this election uh, in the U.S., but also in the U.K. I mean, many of the things that Christians have come to stand for are not always the same things Jesus stood for. In fact, we end up um, 
if we take our eyes off Jesus, we talk a lot of, about things Jesus didn't talk about, and we don't talk about the things Jesus talked a whole lot about. So that's why we, you know, I keep my focus on Jesus, and Jesus is kind of the lens through which I think about politics, and I think about social issues, I, um, and, uh, but I'm a great, you know, collaborator, and I team up with a lot of people of other faiths or no faith in particular. I think that's also really important to us. Reading um, Red Letter Christians a bit about politics specifically, the thing I found really challenging was the idea that we should be politically engaged but nonpartisan. But <laughs> how do you see that and translating, Brody and I were talking about this, in society that is as polarised as it is, you know, it's easier to be nonpartisan when you've almost got like a good option on either side. When things are as divided and, you know, populism is as as present as it is, is it harder now to be nonpartisan as a Christian? And is there a certain point where being nonpartisan actually kind of almost fails to fulfill that duty to, you know, look after the vulnerable and, and pull the marginalized into the center? Yeah, so it, there, I think it is important to recognize that we've got two pretty different contexts happening right now, you know, and you've got multiple parties. We've got um, two, and we're in this like moment in, in America where everything's at a stalemate, right? And we're in a, in a, in a we're crashing quickly. Um, so, uh, I mean, just on a side note, I saw that I, I was listening to this incredible Freakonomics thing. I was trying to find out the people that I was listening to, but what it was showing <laughs> is how American politics were built around the same values as corporate capitalism mm. and competition, right? So we had these two parties that have competed and everything's about the competition and winning and losing between the parties. But they said one very significant difference is that they have agreed on one thing, how to create the rules so that no one else can rise to the occasion. So in almost every other competitive capitalistic um, enterprise, if the system wasn't working, someone else would rise up, right? And they would create a new party or a new company, right? If, the, if two airline companies are both failing, a new one's going to surface. But we've created the rules where that can't happen in our country. It's pretty interesting, right? So I think that's where we end up with this stalemate. Whereas, I, I mean, I, I would love it if we had multiple parties, you know, but this is the couple of things that I want to say on it is that um, loving our neighbor as ourselves means that we concern ourselves with the policies that affect their lives. And there's a lot of Christians who politics is a dirty word for them. You know, that they, they want to, you hear a lot of language of, well, we concern ourselves with the mightier, uh, you know, things of the law, winning people's souls, right? And I, I mean, I, I believe in salvation. I believe God is personal. I, I, I want to see people fall in love with Jesus, you know. But I also think that Christianity has often been used as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world that we live in. So it's just about escaping this world and not about transforming this world. And when, when Jesus talks about uh, the language he used was the kingdom of God, right? The reign of God, or we might think about the dream of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. And He's talking about that, not just something we go up to when we die, but something that we are to bring on earth while we live. So that's where I think this idea of what would it look like for uh, God's dream mm. to be actualized uh, in, in our country, in our streets, in our cities. Um, and we know some of the things that that would look like. Everyone would have this day, their daily bread, you know, that we would see 
uh, we would not see in our country a hundred lives lost every single day to guns, a hundred lives every day in the U.S. And, you know, the manifestations of that in your culture are different, you know, but I think things like how we welcome immigrants and refugees, um, those, those things matter to God. And a lot of our policies are driven more by fear than by faith. And they're driven um, more by, you know, there's this wonderful scripture that says, perfect love casteth out fear. And I think fear and, and um, love are two opposing forces. And sometimes our policies are, are shaped more by fear than by love and compassion. So that's a real question is what does it look like to vote for love, to, to vote, to, 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 to have love be the compelling force that's driving our policies and, and also the ideas of scarcity that there's not enough, you know, these people are taking our jobs or whatever. It's very clear that as Gandhi said, there is enough for everyone's need, but there's not enough for everyone's greed, right? Mm -hmm. There's not enough for 80 wealthy billionaires to have the same amount as half of the world's population. And that's what we have right now, right? So I think we've got to address those. And uh, my friend, Reverend Liz Theo Harris, who's the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign here in the U.S., she says, there is no scarcity of resources. The only scarcity we have is a scarcity of will and of willpower and so that's where the people come in and we've got to stir the hearts of our politicians to um you know be driven by by love and compassion um and uh so you know when it comes to partisanship though just you know quickly to to, to, to say a little bit about why i think it's important to be nonpartisan is that my friend tony campolo he he has said you know, mixing our faith with a political party is kind of like mixing ice cream with cow manure. It, you know, it doesn't mess up the manure, but it really messes up the ice cream. And I think what can happen is we end up our primary identity being that political party or our primary hope being in this person. The unmistakable radical imagination of the early church was that they claimed that their hope was in Jesus. And in fact, when they said Jesus is Lord, they were saying Caesar is not, right? Like literally my faith um, and my hope are not on the left or the right, but they are grounded in Jesus. And I think that doesn't mean we're not political, but it means that we have a different imagination, right? So like when I read the Sermon on the Mount, those are the... the priorities of Jesus. And those are be, begin to shape how I think politically. So part of why I care deeply about um, life is because I see that as a consistent um, ethic in Jesus. And I don't see, especially in our system, a single party or a strong pro-life candidate. And I grew up thinking of pro-life just around the issue of abortion, right? And I sometimes joke that America may be the only place in the world where you can say you're pro-life and still be pro-guns, pro-military, pro-death penalty, anti-environment, <laughs> like pro-death on everything. But as long as you got abortion right, you're in the clear, you know? So, and we're having a much better conversation on that in the U.S. I think providing health care is a part of that, right? Um, but I also care about ending the death penalty. I care about 
um, militarism and war. And every major candidate that we have right now uh, is about increasing military spending in war. And we've got the capacity. I mean, it's a little different for us. I mean, you've got a big military, but we've got like the capacity of 100,000 Hiroshima bombs. Like who in the world needs one Hiroshima bomb? We killed, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, almost 300,000 people. So I think, you know, that, that kind of, that stuff. So I think those are questions like, like does, do nu nuclear weapons have a place in the kingdom of God? You know, does the death penalty, yeah. this idea that, that, you know, someone is so beyond redemption that they should just be killed. Like it, it has, it's an absolute contradiction to the gospel of Jesus. So I think those things, you know, that, but they're not partisan. I mean, in our last election, both candidates were for the death penalty. Both candidates wanted to increase military spending, you know? And so um, some of that's changing the landscape in our country, but um, that's why I find it really difficult to like say, well, you know, I'm putting all my chips in with this person because there's all, probably always going to be a few things that I disagree on. And that's where I'm always coming back to Jesus as my framing uh, pedagogy, you know, kind of for how I'm thinking of these things. I think it's good to hear that expression of a level of political apathy and misguidance in terms of what party should I vote for or where do I align? I know in your book, In Jesus for President, you spoke about voting and you were not necessarily advocating for a party or a candidate. You were saying, we're going to go through a process and that process was more a level of damage control. Could you speak more about that? Yeah, I think this is a helpful way of thinking about it. And, and, and to me, it's a, a little bit more um, concrete way of resolving this idea. I mean, over and over in our country, I don't know if you, if you hear this over there, but you hear a lot of the lesser of two evils. You know, you hear a lot of, um, um, you know, I'm going to hold my nose and go into the voting booth or whatever, you know. So I think sometimes the, the danger in our political engagement is that we set the bar too high. You know, we're, we're not, for Christians, we're not looking for a savior. Like we found the, the savior. We're looking for someone that's going to do a little less damage to the world. And I think that that's, you know, some people think that's cynical, but I think thinking of it from that posture of I'm, I'm voting to do harm reduction. I'm trying to harness the principalities and powers of systems that are hurting our brothers and sisters. So I want to do, I'm going to vote for the person who's certainly not perfect, but hopefully they will lift the boot off the neck of people um, and, and do a little less harm to the earth. Um, so, you know, those are things that, and I also think there's ways of thinking of voting as solidarity. I mean, the, you know, the, that there are people in our country who their voices are being suppressed. Um, so, you know, we have thousands and thousands of people all over our country crying out in the, in the streets, I can't breathe, Black Lives Matter. And so part of why I think of voting this year is trying to um, heal some of the wounds of 400 years of racism have left uh, in our country. So um, I'm voting in this election for Breonna Taylor. I'm voting for George Floyd, you know, I'm voting for those who 
their vote has been taken away because they've been charged with all kinds of stuff in our broken criminal justice system, some of them for marijuana charges or something, right? And then their voice has been taken away in that particular um, expression. So what does it mean to vote for our dreamers, our young immigrants that just like you all, some of them have graduated from college, they've gone on to start businesses and they still don't have citizenship in our country. They still don't have a right to vote. So what does it look like to be in solidarity uh, with them? Uh, so all of those, I think, are our way of thinking of, of voting that are a little bit more nuanced and, and a little less like I'm going in with my ideologies, you know, and I, I'm voting for the person that's got this issue right or this issue right. And I think going like, well, let's let's zoom out a little bit and let's just think of the big picture. And I think in our our election right now, that's crystal clear. I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I, I think that Trump, we, we know who Trump is. We know who Donald Trump is. Nothing should surprise us. Um, the question for us in this election is who we are and who we want to be as a country. This is sort of a referendum on us, you know, and so that's why I, um, I think that, um, it, 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 you know, it is important, but, you know, in the landscape of the unfolding redemptive story of God's revolution, voting day is one day. Mm. And yet, like, it's not the only day that we make change happen. And I think that's one other thing I would suggest that, you know, Christians, we have a more robust idea of how we make change happen. It doesn't just happen one day every four years or two years or whatever election day is, but we are trying to make change happen every day. As Jesus said, to seek first the kingdom of God, where the mighty are cast from their thrones and the lowly are lifted, where the last are first and the first are last. So we're trying to turn the world upside down every day. We're trying to amplify the voices that the powers are crushing uh, every day, not just on election day. I think that's interesting. So looking towards the election in the next 28 days, I think for many Christians in America, historically looking at it, you would say that pre-Barack Obama's first term, when he was a Democratic candidate, um, Black evangelicals were like, let's support Obama, Obama for president. Currently, it's white evangelicals that support Donald Trump for president. So where do you feel a Christian can be in relation, especially to Donald Trump. I know you were saying that we can't look to any politician or anyone as a savior, we already have a savior. But do you see it as a situation where one can't necessarily be considered or a Christian if they vote for President Trump, if they support President Trump? Yeah, so so I, uh, I, I wanna say, what, what, what Jesus said is that a tree is known by its fruit. Um, the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart, right? We know what the fruit of the spirit is. The scripture tells us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. When you take those things and you kind of bounce them off our, our current administration, you see things that manifest themselves looking much more like the seven deadly sins, than the fruits of the spirit. The people that Jesus blessed in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, 
Blessed are the meek, the merciful, the peacemakers. These are the people that this administration is crushing. So I, I don't know how we can hold uh, the gospel of Jesus in one hand and defend the rhetoric and the policies of Donald Trump uh, on the other, you know? And this is not just about Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump is the manifestation of some of the worst principalities and powers that we have in our country. Uh, uh, it's, it's been said Trump didn't change America. He revealed America. And I think the same is true of the landscape of Christianity, right? He didn't change evangelicalism, but he showed us uh, evangelicalism. He surfaced some of that, right? And so one of the things that is so important that you alluded to, Rodney, is that, that white Americans and people of color are experiencing a very different reality. Uh, maybe that's been true for a long time, but I think it's particularly visible right now. And so when you ask folks, do you support Donald Trump? 80% of white evangelicals say yes. But what people often don't know is that 80% of non-white Christians say no. Like, and, and it's true on almost everything. You, you say, does syst is systemic racism real? Like, does, does this affect our policing? Does it affect our criminal justice? Do CEOs really hire someone differently by, because of the color of their sin? their skin and and overwhelmingly white folks say no 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 you got a few bad apples but the system works and people of color say exactly the opposite <laughs> you know? so so i think we've got to recognize that that this is not a christian thing it's a white thing and many white folks are more shaped by their whiteness than by their faith and uh, so it's no it's no coincidence that this came on the back of the first black president as you named you know barack obama and the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, all of this happened. And so now there are many white people that have held the power, that have framed the narrative, that have told the history, that have built the monuments to the Confederate generals that are now feeling our nation change, right? Our, our demographics, our landscape, our Congress. And so, there's this white anxiety and fear and um, clinging for power, right? And we see it manifest in so many ways. The militia groups that are, you know, marching on capitals with their guns, all of that, right? So um, that, that's where I think, you know, when people say make America great again, many of them are saying make America white again. Because you think, what era of American history would African-Americans like to revisit? <laughs> you know, like Jim Crow, uh, you know, slavery, uh, you know, right? So, so I think this is about who's shaping the narrative and who we want to be as a country. Yeah. Now, the last thing I'll say is like sometimes what happens in the UK is you've got some of those same principalities and powers that are at play, and you kind of look to America to get yourselves off the hook, right? Cause you're like, at least we're not that bad, you know? Uh, but, but I think like, you know, I, I would encourage you like to, you know, I think this is what you all both are doing. You know, Meg and Rodney is, is, is working with that, that like 
don't wait until you're as in as bad as a funk as we are right now, right? <laughs> like, let's let's wrestle with yeah. those things because you know I believe the truth will set us free, and we haven't told the truth about our past, and we can't get our future right until we get our history right, you know. And that's what the the battle over these monuments is about, you know. Like, you don't go to Germany and see monuments to the Nazis. You see monuments to the lives that were destroyed by them you know memorializing their lives and the preciousness of it now we still have monuments to the, the confederate generals that were on the wrong side of history fighting to uphold slavery that's who we've memorialized right so we've put up statues to the victimizers rather than the victims so i think that's uh, you know that's all what's at play here and so i you know i've i've been saying um, i said this before the last election that just a low bar on this would be that Christians probably should not be endorsing the same person as the KKK, <laughs> you know, in the NRA. There's a lot of things that we can disagree on, but this is not just about issues. I think this is really uh, about, you know, uh, who we are and what's at play right now is, is really kind of the soul of our democracy. So y'all keep us in your prayers over there and, um, because I, I, I do think that it, it not only is this a political and social crisis, but it is a spiritual crisis. Mm -hmm. When the same people that led me to Jesus are defending Donald Trump, mm -hmm. like th this is a problem. And that, you know, I've, I've said I am troubled by Donald Trump, but I'm even more troubled by the Christians like Franklin Graham and Robert Jeffress and Paula, uh, Paula White and, and, you know, that are continuing to try to defend the indefensible. Uh, and, and so, uh, yeah, that's, that, those are my thoughts. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's I won't hold back. Because our, I think one of our last questions was going to be in the UK, we often look at the US and do. And I think something we've been feeling is this sense of like, you guys are where we're going gosh, that's a scary thought. How can we, yeah, take action now? And how can the church kind of, yeah, ready itself ahead of time and not be reactive to the worst? I think that's really interesting. Um, to finish, we were actually wondering if you would be happy to just lead us in a really quick prayer as we look to the American election. We would love our um, people that listen to the podcast and anyone that hears it, they're obviously beholding um, you guys in their prayers. And it's actually really difficult, I think, to pray around elections. It's really hard to not turn our prayers into let this person win, let this person lose. It turns it into a bit of a sports game and it feels like you're praying for like a football match and like that's such a weird thing. So yeah, we would love, yeah, to hear what you think we should be praying for and how we can navigate this in a way that isn't winning and losing like you were saying. So good. I'm, I'm grateful for the conversation with both of you and for everybody listening in. And I think you do have a lot of your own work to do, right? I mean, I don't know exactly how many lords there are in the House of Lords that are not white or whatever, you know, but I have a hunch. <laughs> no, I think some... <laughs> I mean, I think when Michael Curry came over and preached at the royal wedding, that ruffled enough feathers, you know. But I think, I think, you know, they, these these things are, they they look different. But um, interestingly enough, those principalities and powers are they're very familiar. Like when you start to see what fear looks like, right? What um, racism looks like without a white hood. But you know, there's so many different manifestations of that. So we're 
you know, even the, the knife violence that we've worked with, you know, to transform knives the same way we're transforming gunmetal over here, all that. I think we're praying for that same prayer, though, that Jesus taught us is that God's kingdom, God's empire, God's dream would come, you know, on earth as it is in heaven. So I'll lead you in this prayer, but thanks again for the conversation. I actually created this little, it's like a one minute prayer that I, um, I've been praying with some of the folks that are um, uh, running for president or are right now um, organizing those campaigns. And so, um, but I think this will resonate with you all too. So um, let's pray together. Forgive us. Forgive us, God, for the sins of our past and the sins of our present. Forgive us for stolen land and stolen labor. Forgive us for believing that some people's lives matter more than others. Forgive us for creating a world where so many have so little and so few have so much. Forgive us for disrespecting the earth, for trusting in our chariots and horses, our guns and our bombs, for the scandal of millions wasted in war. And Lord, we ask your deliverance. Deliver us from the principalities and powers that stand against your love. Deliver us from counterfeit religion. Deliver us from the demon of white supremacy and the myth of racial hierarchy. Deliver us from fear and from our own idolatry of nationalism. Deliver us from the ugliness of racism and the cancer of hatred. And we pray, oh God, with those who are hurting right now. Hear our prayers for immigrants and refugees, for the victims of violence, gun violence, police violence, knife violence, domestic violence, economic violence, all violence. Hear our prayers for the incarcerated, for the homeless, for the addicted, for those infected with this disease and those on the front lines trying to heal us. Hear our prayers for widows and orphans and all those that you called the least of these. May the things that break your heart break ours. And we do pray for our leaders and legislators. Let them be driven not by fear, but by love. Break the, the cycles of oppression. Give us a vision that's big enough to heal both the oppressed and the oppressors. And you tell us, oh God, that these three remain faith, hope, and love. So help us choose love over hate, faith over fear, and hope over despair. Amen. Amazing. What an absolute joy to hear from Shane there. Um, going forward now, I think there's one particular thing that he said that really spoke to Rodney and I that we wanted to have a bit of a discussion, a bit of a muse about this idea of as Christians, how we should be nonpartisan in our interaction with politics. And I don't know about you, Rodney, but personally, there's a bit of me that found that quite an offensive idea. You know, as much as I know in honesty that my politics is rooted in my faith. And it is something that I've reached through like the lens of Jesus, as Shane put it. I am quite tribal in my politics in terms of both you and I are members of political parties, both you and I vote the same way at each election, you know, I've canvassed for candidates. And so the idea of being nonpartisan, I think initially was 
yeah, quite a challenge to me because it sounds like basically someone's telling you to lay that down and, and give up on a party. But then when you and I were chatting about it, you actually really challenged me when you said something about what it really means to be nonpartisan. Yeah, when we were having that discussion, I was thinking about where it comes from. Mm. Why do we choose to be partisan? And it somewhat relates to the society we're in. If we yeah. look at the society we live in, we as people like to be in convenient boxes mm. in which we like to place each other in. So you would find that we always tend to have a lot of arguments and debates about whatever topic it may be. And we'll be like, all right, whose side is he or she on? Yeah. Oh, and who are those other people? And then we like to label people, oh, he's progressive, he's um, conservative, he's Republican, he's Democrat, he's Labour. Because we need to be in these boxes because we're terrified to not be in a place where we're not put in a box and not mm. labelled as something. And we like to attach ourselves to um, all these false identities, yeah. which are flawed human ideologies. So in the process, we do end up creating a lot of enemies. And yeah. I feel like it comes from a place of wanting to belong. Mm. You know? Because if you're not considered a member of the Labour Party or Liberal, then you some go, oh, where do I fit in? But it's, it's kind of all right not to belong. Yeah. Be in the middle, you know. You could, you could have that position being there and it not feel abnormal. Yeah, completely. And I think something that is quite a scary reality is that, like you said, when we search for these identities and belongings in our politics, it divides us as Christians. You know, if I I identify most strongly as a member of the Labour Party, and and you do as a member of the Conservative Party, for example then that divides us as Christians. And in 1 Corinthians 1, 10, it says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And that is really challenging. You know, mm. we're not supposed to be divided as the church. And that doesn't mean that we should pretend that we don't have different opinions, because inevitably we do. Like, it would be unrealistic to say that as a result of that, we all should just believe the exact same thing. And I think it's still a challenge though to, to balance that line of we do need to be a united church. And if our political identities and our, our need to belong, as you said, comes above our desire to be a united church, that's where being partisan, I think, really becomes problematic. There's a, a Tim Keller quote that I've said about a thousand times to Rodney now um, that I found when I was reading about this, which is, most political positions are not matters of biblical command, but of practical wisdom. And I do think that does explain to an extent why we do differ on things, because a lot of situations, as much as the idea Shane spoke about of looking at things through the lens of Jesus or looking at them through the lens of justice and of love is true, situations often are the product of practical wisdom and practical wisdom is context dependent. It depends on you know the election the year where you live a whole load of different completely contextual elements and so to suggest that we should be completely united in our political opinions is a bit absurd really isn't it to be honest i do understand because i was in that position where oh i was quite strict on issues whatever the issue was i, would, I had i actually had a book and i'm raising up to you that you can see right <laughs> Yeah. Politics according to the Bible. Um, yeah. I, I urge any listeners, if you want to read it, you can. And it was a, a point when I was like unsure about where 
I wanted to be politically on issues because mm. you just don't want to enter certain environments and somewhat act against the will of God. So I was looking at issues and I found that this book was very like conservative based, you know. Yeah. And if I stuck to it, I knew it always brought scripture first yeah. in relation to every issue. And if I stuck to it, I found that I would be missing the context of whatever issue it is. So if we're dealing with immigration or refugees, I can't just take this book and say, all right, a Christian should believe and respond to the issues of refugees and immigration according to what this book says, although it uses scripture to back it up because yeah. the context is different. Mm. And that's where we actually need to allow the leading of the spirit on mm. certain issues to hear God's voice and his mind on certain issues. Yeah. That's definitely thing we can't be strict in terms of our belief. And I also think our identities, like you said, shouldn't be and can't be based on our political identities. And those political identities also shouldn't be a reflection of the faith we hold. Yeah. So because a Christian holds this party or this leader in high regard is not a reflection of Christendom. Yeah. It's just a reflection of their political persuasions. Yeah. I completely agree. And I think it speaks to this whole phrase, and we say it a lot, but the idea that as Christians we need to be in the world and not of it. And that's obviously derived or kind of comes from John 17 um, when Jesus is praying. And Jesus says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And so, you know, I think the, the tension of this actually really speaks to the tension that we face as Christians in politics, because, yeah, we're not of the world. We shouldn't be so caught up in political parties or in political issues that it becomes like our be all and end all and who we are. And we, we know the truth. It's, it's God's word. But we are in, sent into the world. We're sent into the world to bring about God's kingdom in, in whatever way that is. And that means that we have to engage with issues that are complex, that are, yeah, context dependent. Um, and so I think the more Rodney and I have spoken about this, the more my understanding of Shane's idea of nonpartisan has changed. I think I initially definitely came at it from an idea of like, you can't support a political party consistently, mm. which I was a bit almost like that's, that's naive. That's, lacking in nuance and I think I've realized through more discussion it's less of a call to not support a political party and more of a call to not have a political identity that is dominant and becomes above yes. Jesus and the moment yeah. that I realized yeah that I identify with other voters of my party more than I identify with other Christians that's a really challenging thing. Where does it leave me where, whether I wanted to or not, my political identity has become something that I find more unity in than, than my faith? I think that's a good point. When you speak about us not being of the world, I think it's really a mind thing. We have mm. to change our mindset, how we view the politics of everything we engage in, whether it's within politics itself or work politics or whatever it may be. We're not of this world. We're not of the worldly systems. We don't operate. We don't think and necessarily play the games of the world. We're called actually to be, to not be conformed to this world, but mm. be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So I think we have to think different and understand that ultimately before our allegiance to any political party or country, we have a, an allegiance to Christ. Yeah. 
Philippians um, 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we are eagerly waiting for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So before anything else, first and foremost, we have a responsibility to walk in line with what God says and responsibilities as Christians. And that doesn't mean that we avoid the political arena, that we're not partisan, because I think you were discussing and you said that um, when you look at some issues that you tend on always being on the same side. Yeah. And I think that's, that's perfectly fine. But it's the main thing for us as Christians when we engage in politics is that we become responsible and conscientious citizens yeah. in earthly yeah definitely and I think just as we wrap up there's one kind of final question that I don't think we necessarily have an answer to but this idea of being of being nonpartisan and of holding your political identity almost quite weakly is is easy to adopt for like you or I but I think the question that I still haven't quite understood is what does that mean for people that are politicians mm. you know I think you almost end up in a situation where the answer is like you can't be can't be a high up politician and be a Christian, which we both know isn't true, you know, like in Ephesians 1, it states that Christ rules there above all heavenly rulers, authorities, powers and lords. And he has a title superior to all titles of authority in this world and the next. And Shade, in one of his books, uses that to draw reference to the fact that in bringing his kingdom, God will use all authorities, all powers, all lords. So we know that we're called to be, you know, there's no reason why a Christian can't be prime minister. But that's a really big challenge in a political system like ours in Britain, which is so tied. You know, you've got the whip, you've got like if you're a front bencher, you've got to stay online with the party. How do you hold a political identity weekly when being a politician in our political system basically requires you to hold a party above anything else? And I think that's a question that we don't really have an answer to other than, like you said, you need to be willing to be led by the spirit. But yeah, where you leave, where that leaves a kind of, as I say, career politician, that's obviously a, a phrase that has bad, um, you know. Totally. Yeah. But someone whose actual job it is, where there's mm -hmm. maybe not the space to go, actually, I'm not going to agree with you party on ish X issue, because then you like have to resign the whip. I don't know where that leaves people. I think that's an interesting point. And like you said, we will never be able to answer that. I think <laughs> when, we get, when we get an MP on, that's a tricky one. Yeah. But I think we'll just like to thank everyone for listening and yeah. tell us your thoughts about this issue. Should Christians be non-partisan? Should they be partisan? Mm. Do you believe the problem is that we allow our political identities to overshadow and cause a division within the church to help yeah. you debate with our Christian brothers and sisters? It would be really good to hear from you. So let us know through social media. On Twitter at FIP underscore podcast. And on Instagram at Faith in Politics Podcast. And yeah, we'll see you next next month. Thanks so much for listening.